Those words that we just sang, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, it says in the English standard, yet I will trust him in many translations. Um, Those are words uh, that mean so much more to us in view of the cross. We're studying in the book of Job, and these words take on great meaning in view of the cross. Uh, and, And how much does the cross mean to us when we suffer? We lost the oldest member of our family on Friday Miss Hilda Yarbo, Joy Eckhock's mother, so glad that Joy is able to be here, and Jim this morning, 100 years old. Uh, she went to be with her Savior. And yet, you know, in many ways, although we lost her, we're still connected with her. And not only with her, we are connected with every single person who has ever believed Jesus to be the Messiah, the one who paid for the sins of the world. And all who believe in him and trust in him become part of God's family. Um, th- that's one of the reasons, by the way, there's so much... I'm going to talk about suffering even just in the introduction here, but that's one of the reasons that that church history is so important. We are connected with all those who is who have gone before us. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to show the film Restless Heart. It's about the life of Augustine, who arguably most important theologian in all of church history. And, and interestingly enough, both the Catholics and the Protestants claim him as the most important theologian, apart after the writers of Scripture, after the, the apostles, the prophets, uh, of the that early first century moved on, we look to Augustine for so much of what we understand about Scripture. He said it in ways that really moved us forward in our our thinking. Um, the Reformation, which we are studying right now on Wednesday night, and as we look at the life of John Calvin, you hear the term Calvinism. It's really Augustinianism, updated. That's all it is. And Calvinism, if you've sort of had a bad taste in your mouth and your mind about that word, it's possibly because you don't know the John Calvin that is caricatured by so many people. So Wednesday night, we're having a church history class on John Calvin. And Ricky Mill, who was very instrumental in the beginning days of of Grace Community Church, one of uh, our supported missionaries and who will be speaking to us in January. It's going to be here Wednesday night. Neil Manning and I met with him Friday to sort of prepare for that class. He's done a lot of great work. He's got handouts. You ought to be here Wednesday night. I, I am just sick that I missed the opportunity uh, earlier, about three weeks ago, to say, Hey, look at me. Wednesday night, we are going to have a real scholar on Martin Luther, real scholar of the word, Denton White. We have that on video. We have it audio. You can look at that. Denton White, who was at Grace Presbyterian and is now a Lutheran pastor in in, in Southern Pines, Pinehurst area, pastors two churches. That alone ought to say, wow, that's interesting. Make you say, that's interesting. Why did he go from this to this? Easily the most sophisticated theological mind I've been around, Denton White, where I am around day in and day out. Now, 
obviously there's some people who know a great deal more than he and I put together times a thousand. But Denton is a brilliant guy. So if you miss that, and what a beautiful spirit the man had. And you're going to find the same thing Wednesday night. So be here Wednesday night for church history. Typically about 15 of us show up. But let's make it about 30 of us this week. Show up. We'll have child care and 7 o'clock Wednesday night uh, here at church. Um, it is appropriate where one of the reasons I sense the Lord leading me to preach through the book of Job was because of all the suffering that we have in our church. And the wheelchair brigade, brigade is with us this morning. We've got Cindy Newton back here and Lisa Pelton back here. Lyme's disease, uh, kidney failure, just all well, kidney struggles. And she's having to take dialysis now. All kinds of things. Aren't you so great? It's so good to see both of you, by the way, here instead of, you know, in a bed or a hospital bed or a home with with struggles. Um, but isn't it good that our hope is not in this world? Can you imagine bright minds that that we have in our church who are struggling, active bodies, and now suffering so can't can't bless people like they have. Our hope is not in this world. Suffering is is felt far more keenly when there has been little before. That's not the case with either of these two ladies that I've just pointed out. Uh, They have struggled many times before. But when we have orchestrated our lives and manipulated the resources that are available to us to keep suffering at bay when it comes on us it is felt far more keenly that's job i mean job did everything he could he always obeyed god to the best of his ability he prayed for his children he 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 sought god's mercy and protection and god so beautifully gave it and when we do everything we can to avoid calamities, and they come upon us anyway. Then it's keenly felt. Throw in a belief, and it's almost like we can't help ourselves. Unless we hear this truth over and over and over, we will miss the point that suffering There is such a thing as redemptive suffering. So if you throw in a belief in a God who promises good things in abundance and only good things for those who follow him, well, you have ready-made disillusionment at best. Um, One of the beautiful benefits of community is that we allow the one who is suffering to grieve properly, even to cry out in anger or resentment. And we're patient with them because we've all been there or we can sense ourselves in that place. And we recognize that for the follower of Jesus Christ, that pain is only for a time. Um, It's not that you have to hold on to Jesus if you belong to him. He's holding on to you. And you may feel like you're dangling. You're not. He has a firm grip on you, and he's not letting you go anywhere. 
One of the tangible expressions of his care is the church. His covenant community, the body of Christ who holds your heart tenderly as members prepare meals and take you to appointments and watch children and pray and cry with you and gently point you (coughs) to the loving God of Scripture. When the body fails to provide comfort to one who is suffering but instead makes judgments about the sufferer's spiritual life based solely on the physical or suffering, emotional suffering at hand, it feels an awful lot like condemnation to the sufferer. You're just condemning me. Condemnation is absolutely what Job received from his friends. I mean, Eliphaz began the speeches to Job with uh, a clever, outreached hand. Job, if only you will repent of the things that you have obviously done. God will forgive you. He will bless you. He will restore your fortunes. Good things will come to you again. Today it feels like if only you will believe, if you have enough faith, God will do this thing for you. When Job said, I haven't done anything. Or when you say, I trust God. I believe God. But I'm not going to demand that he heal me, I am going to say, your will be done. Then you may have friends like Job's friends, probably not quite like them. I mean, they called him a a windbag and accused him of taking advantage of the poor in order to gain his wealth, saying things like, you sent widows away empty, (coughs) and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. You, you not only didn't give them anything, you broke their arms so that they couldn't work for themselves. Scum of the earth you are. They just made this stuff up. Job responded with sarcasm and the war of words was on. And you already know if you've been following this study, the war was hot. Job's friends made a judgment about his personal life based on the calamities that had come upon him. Job was defensive, both towards his friends and toward God. It's like, you know, God, I I had that same question of you. What are you doing? Job was defensive, and in the face of his defensiveness and obvious unwillingness to repent from what clearly he must have done, The attacks grew more pointed to the point of essentially handing Job over to God for full condemnation. Today we're going to experience the wrath of Zophar who attacked Job in chapter 20. Again, this passage is only representative of things that go on not only from Zophar but from the others. But the the attacks get more and more focused and pointed As they continue to say, you're just worse than we thought you were. The longer that Job defended himself, the more certain his friends were about their assumptions concerning his sin. They thought it was a that woman moment, you know. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I did that. I made a very poor judgment and... My wife, who is standing here with me, has agreed to forgive me and to go on. 
you know, that's what they were thinking it was Job, like, like to all the politicians that we see today who deny, 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 confess when they really have no choice. The way Job's friends treated him ought to be a warning to us. As much because of the nature of this text as the length of it, I'm going to ask you to just remain seated as we read Zophar's words. Um, and, And remember this, much of what Zophar says about God's judgment of sin is right. But his insinuation that Job had sinned and was thus under the wrath of God was absolutely wrong. And that means his words about God will be judged, we'll see in a few weeks, by God as wrong. Zophar was certain, as Bildad had been a few chapters earlier, that Job's suffering was evidence of God's specific judgment on him. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me. Because of my haste within me, I have to say this. I hear censure from you, Job, that insults me. And out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. (laughs) Do you know this from of old since man was placed on earth that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless (laughs) but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. That's pretty straight, isn't it? Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the, of, of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. Big man you were, Job, where are you now? His children will seek the favor of the poor. They're begging. And his hands will give back his wealth that has been ill-gotten is the implication. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches, again, ill-gotten, and vomits them up again. God cast them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil. And he will not swallow it down from the profit of his trading. He will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. See these accusations? He's taken advantage of people. Because he knew no contentment in his his belly, he could not be satisfied with hard work and and the fruits of his own hands. He had to go after others. He will not let anything in which he delights escape him. Not what I have, but what you have too. I want it all. Therefore was nothing left 
after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him to fill his belly to the full. God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens, this judgment of fire is coming upon you, Job. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away. Dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portrait from God. The heritage decreed for him by God. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize the reality that we would be on the bad end of those words apart from Jesus. Maybe we fancy ourselves very good people because we have not stolen. We have, in fact, helped those who were poor. But sin is sin. And in your eyes, we are all as we are, in fact, sinners. And helpless and hopeless unless you make a way for us. Thank you for Jesus. And as we learn from your word today, may the spirit of Christ fill our hearts. Not only in glad appreciation for what you have done for us, but also for um, Lord that the. the 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 impulse, make it our heart's desire to treat others with the same love and grace and kindness and forgiveness that Jesus has extended to us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Tully and Trevigian said, The devil's masterpiece is not the prostitute, but the Pharisee. And it is so very easy to become a Pharisee because not only are we able as spiritually minded men and women to make judgments, we are commanded to make judgments. We must call sin what it is. And if there's sin in the body, (coughs) we have to address it. Job's friends are confident in their assumptions about him and they're vicious in their attacks. There's no such thing as suffering apart from punishment. You are the victim of your own schemes. You'll be blown up by your own bomb, and then you will find the hell you so richly deserve. I don't know if hell has ever had a more worthy occupant than you are, Job. That's where you're heading. Really, that was what it was. It's I, it, Look, it's, it's not believers saying that. But you're starting to hear those kind of judgments against Christians today. And that's only going to increase. 
It's ironic that Job's friends would attack him the way that they do. I mean, they acknowledge right up front his kindness to others who were suffering. The very beginning of their speeches to Job, Eliphaz said in Job 4.4, Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble needs. When people were struggling, Job came alongside of them. He held them up. He was known for his kindness to those who were struggling. And as we always are, we, we want to be treated the way we treat others. And so Job is looking for that for his, from his friends. And, and all he got was unfounded judgment and condemnation. Part of Job's problem with regard to his friends was that he confessed his own feelings that God was against him. I mean, Job is just thinking out loud, and he's saying, "What do you, what God? You're, you're, you terrify me in the night. You're, you, you've broken everything in me. <clears throat> Why are you judging me this way?" Job possessed no category, no theological category for redemptive suffering, for suffering that means something in the end. And his friends made no effort to wrestle with the apparent contradiction of such suffering coming to one of the best men alive. The best man that anyone knew. When Job complained about the heavy hand of God upon him, his friend said, exactly, out of your own mouth you were condemned. We don't have to do the condemning, you're condemning yourself. Let us direct the arrows of God where they belong. Just in case you've forgotten this little reminder from Tully and Tavigian, the devil's masterpiece is not the prostitute, but the Pharisee. You ever really think about where Jesus' strongest condemnation was? Religious, do-gooder, better-than-thou, hypocritical. People of God. Now, were these just because they belonged to Israel? Did they belong to the Lord? No, because they rejected Jesus. But we all tend to move in that direction toward legalism, toward Phariseeism. And we tend to start making judgments about other people. You can say, as Eliphaz did early on, We have discussed all of this, and we want you to know, Job, that what we're saying is for your good. Or you can say, as Bildad and Zophar did in so many words, I'm not sure, Mr. Phony Baloney, that there's ever been a clearer case of someone who has sinned, even though there is no evidence. The difficulty in, in, in identifying a Pharisee is that he or she combines a, a deep and broad knowledge of Scripture with an outward morality that will stand up to most any test. You can look at a Pharisee and say, that life's pretty good. I mean, don't, it doesn't have to be because most of us, when we're judging, we're just comparing ourselves with other people, right? And it's always easy to find someone who's on the south end of where we are. But none of us 
is without sin. And the better our lives are, the greater the danger to forget that any righteousness we possess is not our own, but comes from the one who bore the wrath of God against sin in our place. Thankfully, we have a God who is not going to allow us. Part of Jesus, me not having a hold on to Jesus, but Jesus is holding on to me, is that he reminds us that we're not all that. He just has his ways of doing it. He allows us to see. And, part, and sometimes that comes through suffering, through not quite measuring up, through a disaster of proportions. You have been the critic on people's kids. And then you have children of your own. There's always a way in his faithfulness that God reminds us we need Jesus. And the longer that takes for us to be reminded how helpless and hopeless we are without him, the more likely we are to sit in judgment of other people who struggle. With Job, it seemed very much as though he was experiencing the wrath of God. Wrath that felt very much like condemnation. Listen to how he describes his agony in, in Job 16, 9 to 11. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. <laughs> My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. Very poetic language, isn't it? They have struck me insolently, insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives up to the ungodly, gives me up to the ungodly, and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Have you ever felt like God is just flat out against you? Likely you have, but I doubt you felt quite what. Job felt. This is, as Christopher Ash says, whom I'm getting ready to quote, he says early in his book on Job that Job is not every man. He's not even every believer. His suffering is extreme. Does it remind you of anybody else's suffering, these words? Looks very much like Jesus, doesn't it? The suffering that Jesus endured, wicked men insolently Slapping him on the cheek, striking him on the cheek. Given up to the ungodly. God has torn me in his wrath. Listen to what Christopher Ash says specifically about this text. Yet again, we see this terrible loneliness of Job. Fulfilled in the mockery of Jesus. The Roman soldiers abusing him. The strange alliance of the Gentiles with Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders as they fulfilled Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 1 and 2, all massing together against him, free to do so with impunity because the Father has forsaken the Son and abandoned him to the mockery of the people. Job, of course, has no idea about Jesus, but we do. Because we're on this side of the cross, and we're on 2,000 years of our people, our brothers and sisters in Christ wrestling with how this all fits together. 
And we see the picture that God was painting. It's all part of this one beautiful story. Even though Job senses the wrath of God, he knows that he's been forgiven of his past sins. He's acknowledged them. <clears throat> and that the accusations of his friends concerning these specific things, are these accusations are unjust, totally unjust. In Job 19, verses 28 to 29, he offers a warning to his friends. Be very careful about the sword, using the sword of judgment. It's a double-edged sword, and it'll cut you just as well easily as it cuts me. If you say, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the judgment of Punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. What goes around comes around. Not ex- I think that's in the Bible right next to cleanliness is next to godliness. I think somewhere in there. Uh, it's not in those words, but it's, that principle is over and over and over. What you sow, you will reap. Be merciful as your Father in heaven. Be merciful so that you might receive mercy. Forgive so that God will forgive you. Really, as believers, it's like this. Forgive because God has forgiven you. Be merciful because God has been merciful to you. If there is no room for undeserved suffering in the theology of Job's friends, there is certainly no room for undeserved grace. Right? If you can receive something that you didn't earn, well, that just throws the system all to pieces. It it, it messes everything up. And it just might be that you might suffer for unexplainable reasons. That there is some redemption in what's going on in your life. Oh, how we hope so. How we hope so. Suffering that so many of you endured at such a high level. I can just look around and I can start talking about one thing after another. And suffering is relative, isn't it? People say to those of you who are really struggling... Well, my suffering's nothing like yours, but the fact is, is whatever you're enduring at the moment is pretty big to you, right? And the grace comes as you go. This is a good word for us, is it not? If there is no room for undeserved suffering in our theology, there is no room for undeserved grace. So if you look at somebody and say, Something is wrong with your faith that you're not healed. Something is wrong with your relationship with God, my friend. No redemptive suffering, no grace. Were Job's friends believers? We don't know for sure. You remember Eliphaz's words? I'm sure you all do in 5.13. In fact, someone quote that for us. Job 5.13, Eliphaz. Said he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Guess who quoted those words? 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.19. A lot of what those guys said was right. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Watch a campfire next time. Think about the truth. There's trouble in this life. Once again, it's not that Job's friends were wrong about God's judgment of sin. It's just that they had no room for grace. That's always the case of the Pharisee. At the end of the book, God is going to tell Eliphaz that his only hope of forgiveness for him, the only hope of forgiveness for him and his friends is that they, that Job make a sacrifice for them and pray for them, that Job mediate for them. Again, the gospel and all this, right? And, and so they, Job does so at their request. Job, would you please? And God received Job's prayers. He accepted Job's prayer. So that leads me to think that they were saved. And though Job was not Jesus, we've already pointed that out clearly. All of this suffering for no reason, and now he mediates for them. It's a picture of Jesus, just like Boaz, Charles Spurgeon calls Jesus our called Jesus our great and glorious Boaz. Job is, in many ways, a, a picture is being painted of Jesus. So, if we assume that his three friends are believers, I think most of us would say, "God deliver us from such friends." Yet they exist within the body of Christ, which is why the New Testament spends so much time saying, quit acting like Pharisees. Live according to gospel principles with the grace that has been extended to you. And so truly our prayer should not be, Lord, deliver me from such friends, but Lord, change my friends. That's really not the real prayer, is it? It's, Lord, Keep me from being a Pharisee. Fill my heart and mind with so much grace from you that it overflows towards my brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't know Jesus. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32 is a good place for us to land today as we seek to avoid this spirit of condemnation toward others. Listen, I could have gone in lots of directions with this. Like, for instance, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree and, and because... the Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks when we talk about perspective and how it all fits together. Today, let's focus on not being Job's friends. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear exactly what Job's friends needed to hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. They thought they were God's mouthpiece. Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, is God in Christ forgave you. When Paul says not to allow corrupt talk to come out of your mouth, he's, he's using a word that really talks about rot, as a tree is rotting. Do not allow rotten, putrid, or filthy language 
to be associated with he, with you. Obscene language, gossip, judgmental language. It's all wrapped up in this word. And you know what Paul is saying? You need to be accountable to one another. Now, let me just, again, clarify last week. I'm not against accountability. There is no Christian life without accountability. That's why you can't do without the church. That's why small churches, unless they have to be that way, incredibly small, as in home churches, are difficult because there's no structure of elders and deacons. It's just kind of a very small group, and and there's very little accountability there. We must be accountable to one another. What I'm speaking against last week, what I was speaking against, was accountability groups that are forced on people. They don't know each other, and it feels like, well, I'm not really doing my job if I'm not pointing out some sin in your life. That's what I'm talking about. I have very strong accountability structures in my life. And we need people to be able to speak into our lives even if we don't want to hear it. But be careful when you're on the speaking end. Be careful. Do it, yes. You're called to it. But be careful. So without question, we are commanded by Scripture to call those who sin openly to account. But in our day-to-day life in the body of Christ, we're to put far more energy into building up and forbearing and forgiving than we are to rebuking others for what we consider a less than exemplary life. Way more about building up than pointing out in the New Testament. Look, Christians are just as guilty as anybody else of riding the social tides, catching a wave, and turning from the things that Scripture talks about the most to doing the things that are important to the culture. We're talking about social justice, which is an important concept. With one of our elders one time, I said, just do me a favor, read when you get time to do some extended reading in Scripture, just see whether there's more about social justice or about loving one another. He told me later, he said, you know, I, I, I spent two hours reading the other day after you said that. I said, and? He said, I can't believe it. You ought to just read the New Testament looking for verses about love and about forgiving and about overlooking. And you'll find that this is reserved for the most serious cases. Exhorting, encouraging, hey, brother, you need to do this. Yes, but a spirit of condemnation must never be a part of who we are. Why are we called this way because we're called to be conduits of God's grace first to our brothers and sisters in Christ and then to the world just as David said earlier today Jesus said how are they going to know you belong to me by the way that you treat one another another strong motivation for avoiding corrupt speech is that such practice grieves the Holy Spirit of God 
Now, he's already told us we're sealed to the day of redemption. You're not, we're not talking about eternal security here. But he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's just like those of you parents with adult children. When they don't get along, it grieves your heart, doesn't it? I mean, it just, it, it just hurts you. When they're young, you understand it. When they're old, it's like, what? No, this is just not right. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls us to unity. Look at the beginning of this chapter of Ephesians 4. One, 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 one. He talks about over and over, we are called as the body of Christ to be one, to be unified. And now we're at each other's throats. And so what's up with that? It grieves the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all matters, malice. Bitterness is a sour spirit and sour speech. Some people have that kind of day. Some people have that kind of life, you know. Wrath is a passionate rage. Anger is a settled and sullen hostility. You see both of those, don't you? Clamor is, has to do with quarreling. It's very much like wrath. It's excited shouting. What's this clamor in, I hear in there? People are at each other's throats. Slander, speaking evil of others, especially behind their backs. Augustine, whose life we will view tonight by way of history and film, hung a plaque on the wall by his table that had these words. He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Now, what, pray tell, will you talk about at lunch today? Malice, wishing ill will that may go so far as plotting evil against. Is this how you wish to be categorized by others? I I can't imagine that you would. This is pretty much Job's friends, isn't it? You may not mind others thinking that you're a person who speaks his or her mind, but no one wants to be known as one who is careless with his or her speech. If you're prone to saying, well, I just speak my mind, I would stop right now. You don't, you, that's not the person you want to be. I'm willing to speak the truth, absolutely. Bring it on. I need you because I'm the one that wants to put flowers, and, you know. I want it to look good, smell good, feel good. I need to hear that truth sometimes, a lot of times. Just make sure it's God's truth and his word, not his judgment, in the same way that I have to make sure that I'm not excusing sin. Instead, let us have the spirit of Christ, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, there is so much negativity in our world 
today. No wonder that everyone takes notice when, when, when an individual exudes and extends the grace of God through Jesus. Unfortunately, it is rare to experience grace at deep levels in the church. Not this church. We are the exception, right? We are, for the most part, with this hard fault. We didn't get here easy. But grace flows through here, but it's always in danger. That's why we're called, not not called to build unity. We're called to protect it, to keep it. God has built it in. We're called to protect it. I mean, there are people who are gracious, fit this description perfectly on Sunday mornings or even in home groups. But at the core of your being, are you more like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? Or are you more like Jesus? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to allow his love, his kindness, his forbearance, his forgiveness to flow through you to others. Particularly to others who are members of God's covenant community. If you struggle in this area, God is calling you today to be more like Jesus. And you know what the great encouragement of that is? God wants you to be more like Jesus. His desire is for you to be more like Jesus. He's not saying, oh, that's the way you're just going to be. I'm just, I'm done with you. Never. He's always working to make you more like Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, he is conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus. When unbelievers observe the way that we treat one another, they're going to want some of what we have. And what we have is really who we have. It's Jesus. Much of the suffering that you endure in this life is designed to make you more like Jesus. It's also true that much of what you endure is often at the hand of others. And the temptation is to be bitter about that. Rather than growing bitter because of the ways that you were treated, we're going to talk about bitterness next week. That's where Job ended up. Be kind and forgive. You may, de- you may need to draw lines with others. That's accountability. Can't let people just be anything or everything, but there's a whole lot of overlooking and forgiving that Scripture tells us to do, including right here. Always live with kindness and tenderheartedness. Forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you. Once again, treat others not as you think God would have you treat them. Not even as God treats them. Treat them as God has treated you. Let's pray. One of the ways that we extend kindness, first to the body and then to those outside of Christ, is by taking a special offering On the last Sunday of every month, it's a benevolence offering. And through your generosity, time and again, we have been able to step up in a big way. Our deacons are in charge of this 
fund. And they do a marvelous job of helping to meet the needs of others. And of course, it can't be done unless we give generously. So we will be taking that benevolence offering as we sing uh, in response to the Lord's word. Our Father, we're so unworthy. And when we sit in judgment of others, we have the tendency to feel extremely worthy. Lord, when we sit in judgment, may we do so, as Galatians 6 tells us, as broken-hearted, compassion ones who consider ourselves lest we also be tempted. And in our day-to-day life, our, our life as a church, as a collective body of Christ, may we treat one another with the compassion you have extended to us through Christ whose name we pray now may the God of peace who raised again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good so that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said,